Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Informa Pharma Intelligence Podcast. I'm Mike Ramirez with Data Monitor Healthcare. Uh, so as listeners will know, uh, the earnings season is now winding down. Uh, so we thought we'd talk a little bit about the full year 2019 earnings presentations that have been uh, presented during the last few weeks, particularly for the big pharma companies. Uh, and we're joined today by Derek Burkhart, who is head of financial content for pharma intelligence, and so has been following these uh, these earnings presentations quite closely. Uh, welcome, Derek. Hey, Mike. <laughs> it's good to have you. Glad you could join. Uh, Derek heads up all the company-based forecasts um, on Data Monitor site, known as uh, Pharma Vitae for our clients, and is also doing some uh, leading some of the newer updates we're going to be doing with the patient-based forecasts and consensus estimates. But you know, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, for now, I was wondering, Derek, if you could just generally summarize the earnings season for Big Pharma. You know, how did it go? Yeah. So there, there was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, but primarily it went really well for the big pharma companies. Um, a lot of them are seeing strong top line growth and that's translating into higher profits. And a lot of the companies are set up pretty well for the next couple of years here um, due to the product launches and the overall pipelines that they have. Um, a few that I think are worth talking about, um, Merck first and foremost, um, I mean, it's putting up really strong growth, um, especially on the pharma side, where it put up 14% growth in 2019 as a whole. And the management team is on record of saying that they believe the consensus estimates are too low for the next four years, um, as they believe that the people are underestimating the, the potential for Keytruda, as well as other key products in the company. Um, so I guess Keytruda is really driving the entirety of Merck right now. Uh, mm -hmm. It generated over $11 billion in sales in, in 2019, and that was up 58%, um, which is, is really astounding when you think of the, the, the dollar growth at the size that it is. Wow. Keytruda grew almost $4 billion um, year over year in 2019, and that compare that to the, the total pharmaceutical segment for, for Merck as a whole, and that grew $4.06 billion. Which, I mean, it goes to show that Keytruda's growth will drive Merck going forward. Um, there are a couple reasons to be maybe concerned a little bit in, in 2020. I mean, I still think growth is going to be very strong for them. But there's already, um, Merck has stated that, that Keytruda's got significant penetration already in kind of new eligible patients within lung cancer, which is by far the largest indication for, for Keytruda. Um, so growth is going to be dependent on label expansions and kind of further geographic expansion of the of the drug as well as kind of pricing growth. Um, and so what we're seeing that, that also kind of lead leads us to, to be a little bit cautious, but still still very, very confident in growth. We have um, there's some risk around other kind of IO approvals coming down the, the pipeline. So Opvivo, which has struggled um, in second line lung cancer, could expand into first line lung cancer this year. Um, you have Tedcentric doing doing a little better as well. Um, and so some physicians might choose to uh, use some other other treatment options instead of Keytruda if they if they uh, earn the label expansions there. And so that's that's one potential risk. And then another one that we see. Um, so of the billion dollars in sales that Keytruda has, we think about one billion of it is from Japan. And there are two sizable pricing cuts that, that Keytruda will face this year. Um, it's we, we think it's going to be about 40 percent in total. 
which obviously is a strong impediment to growth. And this is actually really comparable to what Optivo went through a couple years ago in that market where it's it had these two price cuts and growth was actually it the Optivo shrank that year in Japan um, and it's been pretty stable ever since in terms of sales. But um, it, it, if you take a little less than 10% of your total market or your total sales and you don't grow that at all, you can see how growth will slow pretty quickly, um, right. could slow rather quickly for Keytruda this time of year. Um, and then, I mean, there are a couple other key products that they have. They've got some large uh, diabetes franchises that are facing some pricing issues in the U.S. Um, and then Gardasil in the broader vaccines portfolio, that's doing incredibly well. Grew more than 20% for, for Gardasil in, in 2019 and should be rather strong going forward. So, I mean, we feel we, we feel very, very good about Merck. Um, and there's they and I mean, a, a good portion of their pipeline is tied to further um label expansions for Keytruda, both um, as a monotherapy and in combination of other drugs like uh, Lymphema and Lamparza. Um, but we, we, we feel we feel pretty good about them where they're positioned primarily within the oncology space. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's the uh, the current sort of estimate for peak sales for Keytruda? It's got to be way up there now, right? Yeah, it's, I, I believe current consensus is north of $20 billion, um, before yeah. the patent expiration in the late 2020s. Um, and I mean, given the trajectory, even if you assume that it slows and, and keeps slowing, it should it should get there. Um, a lot of that's going to come from international and particularly China, just given the relative incidence rates of these these key cancer indications, especially non-small cell lung cancer. Um, I mean, China has multiple times the, the incidence and multiple times the overall population for for Keytruda to treat. So. There is a large opportunity there, and we and we believe that that Merck's going to take advantage of that over the long run. Mm, um, nice. Yeah. So I think going on another one that that had a really interesting quarter overall, and is is set for an interesting year given the given the push and pull dynamics that that its portfolio is facing is Roche, and so it grew also uh, it grew double digits last year, eleven percent constant currency for its product sales. Um, it does have um, uh, some other other divisions that um, are, are growing slower. That's causing the total company growth to not be that high. Um, but when you look at its par- product portfolio, it has a very sizable kind of portfolio of uh, branded drugs that have been on the market forever and are just starting to see some uh, declines due to patent expirations. And that's Avastin, Rituxin, and Herceptin. And those three together are roughly $20 billion in sales. And those should all start declining or already are declining in, in 2019. Um, and so the question is, how fast can Roche make some of its newer franchises? And these are Progetta, Cadsila, Breast Cancer, Crevice in uh, Multiple Sclerosis, and Emlibra. Um, how fast can those kind of pick up the slack for these uh, stalwarts of, of Roche's portfolio? Hmm. And... Some of these newer ones are are incredibly impressive. I mean, a crevice is uh, I mean generated almost four billion uh, Swiss francs in sales in uh, in in 2019, and that grew 57 percent. I mean, again, very incredible growth at significant scale there, uh, a mega blockbuster. And Libra grew 6.2 times, so more than 500 percent last year. As, it got, as it's gaining share in non-inhibitor patients. Um, and so Roche is just at a point in time where they have to manage 
the decline of these legacy brands, um, w especially within breast cancer, where you have some switching dynamics between Herceptin, Proget, and Cadsila. And they have to hope some of these newer drugs can and can can pick up the slack. And they also have one of the stronger pipelines within the business, and that's going to help them over time as well. So, I mean, we're th these are these are both companies that we're feeling very very confident about though going forward. I um, see. Yeah, another one on the list, and I guess one one last one on the list that's that's especially interesting in 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 my mind is is AstraZeneca. Um, they're they're growing the fastest of a sponge. They grew at product sales at 15% last year. And that's I, I think that's really due to their both their presence in China and their strong presence within oncology, because oncology is really driving a lot of these companies. Mm -hmm. And so Astra actually generates the most revenue from China of any of the, the big pharmaceutical companies um, at, at over four billion dollars. And the, um, some of that's from their respiratory portfolio. Some of that is from their oncology portfolio. Some of that's from other legacy drugs. Um, but broadly speaking, um, AstraZeneca is at a really good point in time within their overall oncology portfolio. You've got Tegriso, you've got Infinzi, and you've got Lemparza, each of which is at the blockbuster status of more than a billion dollars in sales, and each of which are growing at rather uh, absurd rates given the size that they're at. Tegriso grew 74% last year for the full year almost 50% for the last quarter of the year. Infinzi grew over, more than doubled last year. It's almost at one and a half billion in sales. And, and Amparza, which is being bolted onto Keytruda and a lot of indications, so it should have solid growth for a long time, um, broke through the billion dollar mark last year and is, is almost at 1.2 billion in sales. So, I mean, we feel really good about all of these companies. Astra, again, pretty solid late stage pipeline, um, just got in, in her to approved. Um, which they're partnered with, I believe it's Daiichi. And even though they're not going to be recording that as product sales, they'll still get some share of it within their total revenues. Um, and we feel real comfortable about their growth. And they've actually guided for, uh, again, really solid growth rates, approaching double-digit growth for revenues and, and mid-teens levels for, for earnings. So uh, we feel feel really comfortable about uh, Astro's performance looking forward. Um I think if we go to the other end of the spectrum, a couple companies that were slightly on the weaker weaker side or just had maybe less impressive earnings results in this quarter. Um, from a product perspective, Gilead, um, just as a whole, it, it was basically flat year over year. And that's just due to the dynamics that they're seeing in HIV and uh, hepatitis C. They, you have a pretty strong growth out of their out of their HIV portfolio, but Hep C continues to decline and is a drag on the company. And then Yes Card is growth, so the CAR T therapy they have has pretty much flattened out and plateaued at about 120 million dollars in sales a quarter. So while the year-over-year -year growth is strong, um, the sequential growth is is almost non-existent, which is causing some concern, and it's and it's making people wonder about what the actual peak sales figure is going to be for for not only for Yescarta, but for other CAR-T therapies. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen as Yescarta sales have failed to keep accelerating sequentially that Gilead has now written down multiple parts of the kite acquisition that they did. Um, and they've written down over $1.6 billion in, in acquired R&D assets that they 
that they um, that they acquired through that transaction. And the most recent one in Q4 actually was explicitly tied to lower estimates for the market potential of some of these drugs that they acquired. So I think that's a, a little bit concerning there. Um, they are the new management team there is trying to turn things around. They're making some acquisitions and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I think investors are looking for them to maybe do a little more, do something a little more transformative than what they're doing. Um, Sanofi is another interesting one. Its overall portfolio isn't growing that fast at only 3% for 2019, but they have one of the most exciting products in Dupuisent that, that grew 150% last year. Um, and it's now over 2 billion euros in sales. Um, and what's most interesting is they haven't even really gotten that product launched in all of the indications that they're approved in or all the, geogra the geographies they're approved in. So it's doing this growth that's accelerating significantly, and it's still really only, it's generating the majority of those sales from atopic dermatitis only. Hasn't even really gotten penetrated into asthma. They're running a really strong phase three program and a lot of other indications that should really help the drug uh, reach its new, where management thinks it can get. And they raised their expectations to now 10 billion euros in peak sales which is, um, I mean, 5x the current level. Um, and I mean, that would be very impressive for a drug in that space. So, wow. yeah, um, I mean, very sizable. And then again, very impressive growth at, at scale. Um, Sanofi's got some issues in other parts of the portfolio. Lantus, um, again, really anything in the diabetes space is, um, is, is struggling if it's not a, a GLP-1 or a, a DPP-4. Um, Lantus declined 17%. I mean, really, insulins as a whole are just um, struggling, both from from pricing concern. Um, you have net pricing declining, um, and it, it's going to keep declining going forward. Um, and then, I guess one one other interesting bright spot in the portfolio is Abagio and multiple sclerosis. It grew 10% for the year. I mean, that's predominantly from pricing, though. We think volumes are are flat flat to down there when you look mm -hmm. in the seven major markets. Um, and they have that drug for for three more years before generics come on. So I mean, they're they're in an interesting spot. They've got they've got a, a a decent pipeline, but a lot of their growth, kind of like how Merck is tied to Keytruda, Sanofi is going to be tied to Dupuisen for for the near term. So, and then I think the last company that that's worth talking about and bucketing in this space for now is uh is GlaxoSmithKline. Um, they had. Uh, an overall decent year. The company as a whole grew eight percent, but that was because they they acquired, um, they combined their consumer healthcare business with Pfizer's in the middle of the year. So if you account for that growth, was only two percent for for Q4, and it was four percent for the total year. Um, and a lot of that was driven by the growth of Shingrix, which more than doubled last year. Um, Impressive, impressive growth. It's gotten strong adoption. I mean, in the U.S. and in developed markets, the problem that they're going to face in 2020 and going forward is that they're capacity, they're capacity constrained. And so Glaxo, the product is not going to double in 2020, even though demand is still very strong. And so Glaxo will see there will be growth for Shingrix. There will be decent growth. But you won't, we won't see growth really accelerating for Shingrix and therefore for the whole company until they get more supply online, which won't happen until 2024. 
So they're at a little bit of a tough spot there with that. They have a product that 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 is in high demand that they just can't meet uh, from a supply point of view. So it's 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 a good spot to be in, but from a uh, as opposed to being the other way where you have too much supply and nobody wants it, but it, it does limit some of the growth potential that they have. And then their HIV or their HIV portfolio overall. They're trying to move from a three-drug regimen to a two-drug regimen, and they're in the, they're working through the launches of Jaluca and Devato, um, and those are causing Trimec and Tivike, which are both blockbusters, to to decline. Um, and we'll see how that transition goes. Um, I mean, they're they're kind of the number two player in that market after Gilead, and it's it's hard to see HIV as a whole being a growth driver for Glaxo, um, but it's it's still going to be a solid kind of cash flow for them. So, um, I mean, I think that's 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 an interesting spot to kind of stop for for the company overview. I mean, you think we touched on three that, that did a good job and, and were so overall strong and then three that maybe had a little bit of a, a weaker performance. So, yeah. So I guess uh, thank you for that, too. That was a lot of, a lot of great detail. Um, so out of all these companies that we just talked about, ones that had, you know, stronger performance last year and maybe not so strong this last year. Um, just based on their portfolio of, of marketed drugs and pipeline drugs and other sort of considerations, what companies do you think are best poised to have a big year in 2020? Yeah, so I think when we look at both both things that you highlighted, the existing portfolio and then then pipeline drugs that are going to come to market this year, um, I mean, we have to stick with the three at the top that we first discussed. You have, I mean, Merck. You have Roche, you have AstraZeneca. They're all poised to have really strong years here from a pharma perspective. Novartis is another one that that is going to have a good year. Um, the, the the biggest risk to their overall top line is the timing around uh, generic Galenia. That's currently in litigation right now, and that's a three billion dollar drug for them. But within Novartis as a whole, you have several drugs that should be blockbusters over time that are recent launches. And we're thinking of things here like Zolgensma, uh, Mazent, uh, Biovu, even though that's ran into some uh, adverse event issues that might cause some, some, uh, some, some sales to come in slower here at the start. And then they also have uh, Zydra that they that they acquired from Takeda last year that that they're trying to reaccelerate and that's a 400 million dollar drug currently that that they're adding on to the business. So they're in a strong position as well. Um so those are those are four and I guess then another company that'll benefit even though it might not be in the 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 big pharma space. Um Regeneron should benefit with Ilea from the the issues that Novartis is having with Biovu. Um, and then let's see here, any, uh, two other ones that I think are going to be interesting to watch. And it's more from the, the point of view of coming out of mergers. You have Bristol, which, um, finally closed the, the Celgene acquisition. So we're going to see what that overall portfolio looks like. And they have several blockbuster, both launches and hopeful approvals that, that, that will happen in 2020 and beyond. Um, I mean, the Celgene pipeline was was very rich with uh, $15 billion in potential uh, based on their management estimates. And then AbbVie is in the process of, of acquiring Allergan. That transaction is is looking like it will close in, in the second quarter, potentially in, in a month or so. Um, 
and you have there you get to bolster on uh, Allergan's kind of uh, cosmetics and, and pharmaceutical portfolio onto AbbVie's existing uh, pharma portfolio, and that will help supplement the AbbVie through the overall uh, decline of Humira in in a couple of years. So for the near term, I think Abby's in a in a very solid position. You've got continued growth from Humira. You've got Skyrizi, which is already smashing expectations and is going to be a a one point two one point three billion dollar drug in its second year on the market. Um, and then just continued strong growth from Ibruvica and Klexta, that and and again Humira as a whole that that's really going to drive continued growth from them. And then when you bolster on Allergan and any synergies that, that arise from that transaction, it's, it looks like a, a fairly compelling profile for the near term. Nice. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask you about, Derek, uh, so a trend that I've noticed um, more recently is uh, that companies are announcing that they're doing spinoffs. They're spinning off some part of their business. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why that's happening and uh, what players are, are doing that currently? Yeah, so there are several companies in the big pharma space are have announced, and we'll talk about a couple that could announce spinoffs. And these are really focused on taking what are what are believed to be non-core assets or non-pharma assets that are usually growing slower or potentially even declining um, to make the remaining company or what's usually called RemainCo in this case have a better financial profile. And and in the public markets, what usually happens is that all else equal, if a company has higher growth, better margins, um, or just a better future outlook, and that's usually what the remaining company has after these spinoffs, um, that results in a higher valuation being applied, and so a higher stock price would happen. And so what we've seen in this case is we've seen companies like Eli Lilly get rid of their animal health division, and from that transaction, uh, Eli Lilly retired $8 billion worth of its shares. Um, we've had Pfizer send its consumer health division over to GlaxoSmithKline, um, which, and then Glaxo has said that it's going to, uh, spin off likely through an IPO, that consumer health division in two years. And that can, the consumer division is growing, uh, usually, I mean, Glaxo is in a unique position with its portfolio right now with a couple patent expirations and whatnot, but the, usually a consumer health division would grow slower than a pharmaceutical division. So if you look at Glaxo, ex-consumer health, it should be growing faster. Um, Pfizer is, has been very active in this space. In addition to the consumer health spinoff or sale to joint venture with Glaxo, they have also announced the spinoff of Upjohn, which is kind of their uh, generics and, and legacy portfolio. They're combining it with Mylan, and the new company is going to be called Viatris, and that should close in mid-2020. Um, and so what that's going to do is that is going to remove all of Pfizer's kind of older brands that aren't growing or the brands that have just hit patent expiration. So things like Lyrica, Lipitor, products like that, that are a sizable headwind to Pfizer's overall growth rate. And so what that's when that gets removed, what's going to happen is Pfizer's growth is going to go from zero or negative in a couple quarters, depending on timing of, of the overall patent expiration, or even if low single digit positive to it, when you look at the remaining portfolio and the remaining and, and kind of the growth rate that Pfizer will be posting, you'll see growth accelerate to mid to, from basically no growth to mid to high single digits. And, and 
there's been a, a, a re-rating of the shares in anticipation of that. Um, what What's also going to happen with all these transactions is the segment that's getting spun off usually takes on debt, which results in them raising cash and the cash stays with the parent company or with the Remain Co. So with this Pfizer Mylan transaction, up the, the Upjohn segment will be issuing $12 billion of debt. And that debt will go with Upjohn out away from Pfizer, but the cash will stay with Pfizer. So Pfizer will have $12 billion, a better growth profile, better margins, and they'll be able to use that $12 billion to either invest in R&D, go pursue M&A, or really do whatever they they want to with it. And so there's there's a lot of optionality with some of these companies that have been maybe perceived as as uh, big and boring for a while to to reinvigorate their 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 public persona. And then the one that was most recently announced with this quarter's earnings was Merck announcing it was spinning off its women's health legacy products and biosimilars. Um, and and just like Pfizer's getting cash, Merck will also get cash from this. They have announced that they're they expect to receive between eight to nine billion dollars um, as as this new company will will take on debt um, and Merck will keep the cash. And so what that means, again, is that Merck will likely be on the hunt for for more for more uh, assets through M&A or partnerships. Um, similar to kind of what they've done this year with with Arcul and and whatnot. So um, if we look at kind of who could be next, um, Abvi is a good candidate for this. We usually after mega mergers, there are assets that don't fit a company's portfolio. Um, we've seen a lot of sales out of Takeda after they acquired Shire. Um, there has been some proactive sales already by Abvi. Um, and some of this might have been done in order to get regulatory clearance for the deal. Um, but there might be further sales that happen. Um, they would probably be smaller in size, though. Nothing of, of uh, huge, huge potential there. Um, when you look at other in other companies in the big pharma space that have these non-pharmaceutical divisions, um, J&J sticks out. It has a big consumer health division. It has a big devices division. And so you have pr- close to three equally sized divisions there. Could they do something with one of them to raise a lot of capital for the remaining company and, and kind of change things up? Who knows? They might. Um, Novartis has its established uh, innovative medicines division and uh, established medicines. And then it also has Sandoz, uh, the generics arm. Could it could it do something like what uh, Pfizer's done with with Upjohn and, and uh, decide to spin off Sandoz or, or sell it to someone else? That's an option. And then Merck, even though it's doing this this transaction with its women's health legacy products and biosimilars, still has its animal health division. And uh, Merck management has stated that they think that there's synergies, particularly on the R&D side, between animal health and, and human health. Um, but that is an option. We've, as I said first, Lily spun off its animal health division and, and retired $8 billion worth of, of its stock. Um, that's something that Merck could look to do eventually as well. So there, there are a couple options that exist out there. I mean, these this strategy isn't new. So, and these companies that we're talking about, J and J Novartis Merck, have been around for a long time. They are established players, so I don't think they're in a rush to do anything here. Um, but given their perception and their reaction and 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 whatnot that that the companies that have announced these have done, um, it, it is something that I think that 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 management might be considering. I see. Hmm. 
So um, just as, uh, you know, maybe some extra money comes around from the spinoffs and uh, perhaps companies are looking to do some M&A. Um, and it does seem that the deal activity, especially among the big farmers, has picked up. Uh, so could you talk about a couple of recent transactions that have happened in that space and, um, and your thoughts on M&A in general? Yeah. Yeah. So so nothing kind of compares to the start of 2019 when we had Bristol and Celgene and Abby and Allegan announced in rather quick su- succession. I mean, those were significant deals, 74 billion in equity for the first, 63 for the second. Um, I mean, all the deals that, that, that I'll be kind of talking about right now are uh, mid to high single digits in, in value, so not nearly as sizable or, or impactful on the market. But we have seen Big Pharma um, be very active in the deal space this year, um, especially recently, e- even though maybe some of them are going uh, to pipeline drugs and earlier stage assets, not so much commercial stage assets. So a lot of these companies are looking to they are looking at their existing portfolio, looking when they have key patent expirations and when they have key revenue issues coming up. And for some of these companies, we're talking in the 2025, 26 timeframe. And so they're going right now and looking to buy assets that will be on the market in that timeframe that will help manage that revenue issue that they are going to have in several years. So a couple interesting ones that have happened in the past several months. Um, let's see here. I think starting out with um, the most recent one, uh, Gilead and 47. Um, Gilead spent $4.9 billion um, on, on 47, and that's for a early stage uh, CD47 asset, uh, Magrolimab. Um, the, in the prospectus for that, 47 management had estimated that they could generate $2.6 billion in peak sales in the mid-2030s with a billion dollars in sales in 2025. Um, so that's that's a, a interesting prospect if it's something that, that Gilead then can execute on through through clinical development and whatnot. Um, I think the issue that, that investors with Gilead, though, are, are more concerned about is that the company is so big um, more than $20 billion in sales is that they're looking for something more significant and more sizable than a $5 billion transaction. They're looking for something in the $15, $20 billion space or even something that's that's larger. Um, but still, that's that's a, a, a sizable one that, that happened recently. Um, I think another very interesting one that, that just came out, or not that just came out, but that was in the late last year was uh, Novartis and the Medicines Company. And that was the the largest one of this list, uh, almost ten billion dollars, nine point seven, be exact. Um, and that was for Enclisarin, uh, another uh, PCSK9 drug. Um, and I think it that was particularly interesting because Novartis really was the only bidder for that asset. Um, the other uh, PCSKs have been rather, I think, disappointing relative to initial consensus um, when they were launching. Consensus for both uh, Praloin and, and Repatha is definitely fallen and come back in line with maybe where reality currently is. And this is more on a reimbursement issue versus a uh, demand side of things. Um, but Novartis thinks that they can get reimbursement. Novartis thinks that their existing sales force for Entresto, um, which is primary care and cardio, can cover a significant portion of, of the sales costs for the drug. And then they think they can get 
um, the drug launched with only a few incremental, a uh, few hundred incremental reps, and that's globally. Um, the interesting thing really here for a $10 billion transaction is that um, when going through the, the, the filing for it, there wasn't another bidder. Novartis was the only bidder, um, and they went from $8.5 billion up to $10 billion themselves. Um, and this is going to be a slower ramp of a drug. Um, it's, it's been filed with the FDA, so it should, it should be approved. Um, uh, and the perspective, and the filing, it had a uh, six and a half billion dollars in peak sales. The problem is that that takes a while because there's the, the drug is currently in a, a cardio, uh, cardiovascular outcomes trial that won't read out until, uh, for several years. I think it's 2024. And if that trial hits, that's when sales will really ramp. So there won't be many, there won't be a lot of sales generated in the near term. But if this one, if the, the CVOT hits, there is significant potential afterwards. So, um, a couple other uh, interesting recent acquisitions. There's been obviously lots of demand for gene therapy. Um, mm-hmm. You have Estellas buying a dentist, um, and that was really to set up their own gene therapy efforts. And that was a $3 billion transaction. Um, pretty much Estellas uh, looked at their own internal capabilities, the whole build versus buy dynamic. And then Estellas um, decided it would, it would be easier or faster to buy than, than to build it themselves. Um, let's see here. One, uh, one last one, cause it ties in with, with kind of the, the next issue of who should do more deals, who's looking, what companies have stated that they're public, that they're out there looking, uh, Lily, um, in, in January, uh, acquired Demira for a little over a billion dollars. So a smaller deal. And then the asset there, Labricuzumab, uh, for a topic dermatitis, um, it's it's interesting and, and I understand why the deal size was what it was at just a billion dollars um, because Lily is only really getting rights in Europe and then X I mean is only getting rights in the US and uh, X European markets the, the the rights have already been licensed to Almerol in that market several years ago and so this is a drug that if it gets approved um, you'd be competing against Dupi which is already generating billions of dollars um, in sales and a significant portion of that is from AD. And so it's AD is a very competitive market, especially in the US. It'll be interesting to see if the, the sales forecasts that are in the, the regulatory filings there can really play out. And then and Dermira's forecasts were for $1.5 billion in peak sales in 2030. So it'll be interesting to see if those play out. Um, and I think then pivoting this to what companies should do some more some deals or what companies have stated they're looking for deals. Um, Lily has publicly said they're looking to do a one and a half to two billion dollar deal every quarter in 2020. And they're looking at oncology, pain, immunology, neurology. So a lot of their existing uh, spaces of focus. Um, I mean, Merck, it's any of the, co- the companies that are about to get a significant cash inflow from these spinoffs that we just discussed as well. So mm-hmm. Merck, Pfizer, Glaxo are all probably going to be on the hunt. I mean, really, everybody's on the hunt for deals. It's just a combination of is the asset priced right? What amount of risk are you taking on with it? And then also, how does it fit within your existing portfolio and the time frame of launches versus um where your existing portfolio has any potential revenue issues and so those are really the big um kind of uh companies that i think should be pursuing some of these so i see yeah 
like you said, it's all, it's all about the timing. <laughs> yes, it is all about the timing. And, mm -hmm. and I think the recent kind of pullback in the overall market, I mean, it's, it's due to, due to, due to COVID-19. And I think we're going to talk about that next, but right. that, that presents a lot of these opportunities because one of the things that when you go back and look at what happened before the Bristol Celgene announcement, before the Abby Allergan announcement, those were both in late 18, early 19, the stock market had a similar sized pullback, albeit over a slightly longer portion of time than what we're currently seeing. But the stock market in late 2018 declined, um, I mean, 20% plus and in the last several months of the year. And we're seeing a similar, I mean, a larger move in a lot of stocks right now. And so that could um, open up opportunities because all of these assets that some of these buyers might be looking at are suddenly significantly cheaper and might be more receptive to a deal. So, all right, yeah, and you and you mentioned COVID nineteen. It's kind of like uh, the elephant in the room, right? Um, so China obviously becoming more important for these pharma companies, um, and with the outbreak there, um, you know, what what are your thoughts about any impact yet from COVID nineteen? Yeah, uh, so this, yeah, so China is for the most part the second largest individual country in terms of sales for a lot of these companies. Um, there hasn't been a significant overall demand impact yet. Most companies, I think, at this stage are concerned with supply chains. Mm. Um, and this is both potentially on the API side, but also on the research side. And so you could see um, several kind of little blips here that, that happen, but nothing really major from an overall revenue generating standpoint in China. Um, most companies, several companies have come out and either reiterated their guidance, said that they don't anticipate an impact because of inventories throughout the system. Mm. And I will say a couple of the companies that have reiterated guidance don't have large China businesses. So that, mm. that might be somewhat unique. But I, I think if you look at a broader impact of, of what COVID could do, and this is out, outside of China now as it's becoming more material to the US and to Europe. Mm. Um, there might be treatment delays, there might not, but that that could generate a, a impact to the top line for these companies. But I think what's more impactful is how the overall research process is impacted from people adjusting their working uh, patterns. Do, as employees yeah. and researchers work from home and maybe as uh as as hospitals become more crowded is the ability to run a clinical trial disrupted in the way that clinical trials have been run is it possible to find out and determine a way to remotely run clinical trials where you're still able to have self-isolation where you're kind of normalizing for covid risk and does that have an impact on the outcome of your trial even right. um and so that that is, I think, more of where I'm looking at right now for, mm. for these pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there are a couple companies and Gilead is the one that's kind of first and foremost out there that might benefit from a, a, a revenue point of view with with uh, Remdesivir. But that's not something that's going to be sizable in, in the near term. There, there's a potential longer term benefit to Gilead if if COVID kind of normalizes and becomes just like another flu in the out years where there's stocking and this is the potential to be another Tamiflu type product. Hmm. Um, but 
really at this stage it's more about we're, we're concerned more about operational issues operational interruptions clinical trial disruptions that's where the impact i think will be seen more than from a a regulatory or a revenue point of view there are uh, the other potential thing and, and it's and it's interesting that i kind of misspoke the regulatory there but mm -hmm. The, if there's any disruptions or delays to what the US FDA does with their schedule, I know they already have postponed an advisory uh, committee meeting. So there might be some slippage to some approval timelines and that could have an impact to some companies. Um, and, and that's another kind of risk to look at. But, but overall, from a demand point of view, I mean, people that are sick and need treatment are still sick and need treatment. And so there, that, that, part overall should not really change i believe i see yeah and obviously this week you know several pharma companies even those that were developing uh covid 19 treatments or vaccines uh have experienced the hit to their their stock price but um uh you know i guess any other concerns you think you know um that could disrupt the 2020 total earnings i mean we talked a little bit about the clinical research programs and i haven't heard anything about you know clinical research programs being drastically affected yet but i mean i guess what are your thoughts on that there's also travel restrictions right the uh, the self-quarantine that you also talked about a little bit um and, and even maybe the delay and cancellation of these key industry uh, conferences that could impact the earnings i know asco is um thinking about going uh, completely uh, remote yeah, uh, and so I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to think about, and obviously there's no answers yet. But um, you know, what do you think about about the potential of 2020 earnings being impacted? Uh, do you think it's feasible that this could uh, many companies could see kind of a a dip because of this whole uh, outbreak? I don't know if there's necessarily going to be a dip. from a farm. This is purely farmer perspective here. I don't know if there's necessarily going to be a sizable dip. Um, the there could be potential benefits to companies from if these conferences aren't happening, if employees are not allowed to travel, there's naturally some cost savings that comes up there. Mm, um, so there might be some, there are some kind of offsetting benefits that people don't necessarily talk about. The, if, if people aren't traveling, the companies are saving money from people not having to travel and stay in hotels. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, yeah, when you see when you see, I think other knock ons of, of what's going to happen here is when conferences like AACR and you mentioned ASCO as well. But when mm. when conferences cancel, that's a key spot where companies meet with both institutions and other companies to go about p talking about potential deals. So there might be even though the stock right. prices have moved down, there might be some some deal slippage because companies don't have the ability to go out and meet other people there. Right. I mean, people might be doing things either via teams like we are or, mm -hmm. or telephonically, but that's not the same as when you're doing a, a $5 billion transaction, you might want to go face to face and that might <laughs> yeah. not be something that can happen for the foreseeable future. So right. there might be delays and things like that, that, that happen. But um, I mean, without a sizable demand impact, just given the way that this industry is structured, there shouldn't be, a huge overall impact to earnings for these companies. 
Yeah, I see. Uh, like you said, there, there could be some sort of upside with the savings and not being able having to travel. I guess the yeah, but uh, that's not it. That shouldn't be a huge part for really any of these companies really overall. So I think it's it's a lot of it is they're trying to just maintain the status quo in terms of overall productivity while keeping their employees and and everything as safe as possible. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. That's obviously a moving area. We'll see how things work out in uh, coming weeks and months. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I also to, just to close things out here, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, what are some other things you're doing at Informer right now? I know where there's a, a couple of new developments. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, as head of financial content. Um, my team and, and I lead up any any of the efforts that are involving anything financial on the sites. And so this is things like the, the product revenues that we have, the forecasts that we have, the consensus data that we have. So within PharmaVitae, you talked about it right at the start. So that would be the company channel and the sales-based forecasts. We're going to be rolling out some new company reports in the near term here um, that, that are designed to to look and feel a lot like the existing disease analysis reports that that mike i know you spend a lot of time working on as well <laughs> um so that's that's probably going to be the biggest near-term thing we're also reformatting and we're going to be relaunching a lot of the patient-based forecasts um in a new in a new framework that's that, that i think clients are going to like that's going to be the models are going to be completely interactive they'll be they'll be manipulable so if if a client has a different viewpoint either on pricing, an approval date, a market share estimate that versus what we have. Um, they'll be able to make any changes to those. And so we're going to start rolling those out kind of as we get those complete. And then I think the last thing that's 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 most exciting near term is we're going to be uh, completing the the merge of a couple of our products. Um, we're going to be merging MedTrack and strategic transactions into Biomed Tracker. And so with that, we're going to be launching some new, some new, I guess, forecasts and new products within Biomed Tracker. So there'll be a, a deals database where a lot of these uh, M&A deals that we've talked about, um, there'll be a lot more information about those in the Biomed Tracker. And we're also going to be bringing over all the consensus data that we have um, on all these drugs into Biomed Tracker as well. And so there'll be a lot of interesting things that we can do with that once we get that product rolled out. Um, and I guess kind of TBD on more more things after that, but but it's it's an exciting time kind of where we're sitting. There's a lot of work that we're doing, and it's it's going to be beneficial to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to the upcoming changes, uh, particularly the new uh, patient-based forecasts and uh, the expanded biomed tracker. So uh, definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, so uh, with that, I think we'll just close things out. I uh, wanted to thank Derek again for joining and sharing his insight. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for coming happy, on. Yeah, happy to be here, Mike. <laughs> and to those listening, uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening.